please turn to Genesis chapter 6. This evening we're going to consider the flood in the time of Noah and we're going to make application to us today. There's a lot of application for us today but primarily we're looking at the flood. Genesis chapter 6 verse 6 through to 22 and there's a whole lot more but we'll also be looking into chapter 7 verse 11 through to 24. Up until now in our studies in Genesis we've seen how sin and death came into the world by one man, Adam. What followed was that Adam's eldest son Cain murdered his brother Abel and the world progressively became so corrupted by sin that when we get to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, we read that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm giving you a recap. You probably remember I made a big thing of this last week. It's a verse that really struck me when I first read it. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. So much in that verse. Note that things had become so bad that not just the thoughts of man's heart, but rather every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was not just evil, but evil continually. And to think that when God had finished his creative handiwork about one and a half thousand years earlier, he saw that everything he, he, that he had made was very good. Everything he had made was very good. One and a half thousand years later, the thoughts, the, the imaginations of the thoughts of man's heart were evil continually. Indeed, the whole earth was filled with violence. What a difference, eh? As a match that is lit and thrown into a dry forest causes widespread death and destruction, we've considered the death and devastation that was caused and continues to be caused by the spread of sin throughout the world ever since Adam first sinned. Everyone comes into the world with a sinful nature and everyone sins. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Even so, we've seen some encouraging verses where the grace of God towards hell-deserving sinners has been very apparent. For example, if you look back at chapter 4, verse 26. Chapter 4, verse 26. And to Seth, that's the third son of Adam and Eve, and he, if you like, he replaced um, Abel, who was murdered. To Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. So you see some encouragement there in that verse. That happened 235 years after Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. Finally, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And when you look at the line of descent of Adam's third son, Seth, who we've just seen in chapter 4, verse 26, when you look at the line of descent there, coming from him, his loins, 
you can see that various people back then are credited as having had faith in God, of being righteous before God, walking with God and pleasing God. So there were encouragements to, that we've looked at so uh, in our verses up to now. So even though the situation was very dire, by the grace of God it was not all doom and gloom. And that must surely be how best to describe the world that we live in now. The wickedness of man is still great in the earth, but the grace of God is even greater. And by his grace there is still a godly remnant that calls upon his name and that walks with him. And by his grace... Men, women, boys and girls are still being added to the church daily. This evening we shall see God's response to the wickedness of man. A response that resulted in salvation for some, and by some I mean eight people. And judgment and death for everyone else. And that happened in a worldwide flood. Also it will be seen how those historical events that really happened, serve as a great big arrow and point to the world situation as it is now and to a final judgment and to the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Okay, I'm going to read now chapter 6, verse 6, from verse 6. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, that give you some idea, times it by one and a half and you get the equivalents in feet. So 300 cubits, 450 feet. The breadth of it, 50 cubits, and the height, 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark, shalt thou set in the side thereof with lower second and third story shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. And the Lord God makes it very clear that he is the one who's doing it here. I, even I, 
do bring a flood of waters in verse 17. Verse 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing, of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he. That um, speaks of his obedience there, doesn't it? Noah's obedience to God in verse 22. And a few more verses. We'll continue with chapter 7 from verse 11. Okay. In the 600 year, 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the self same day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the, the earth. And the waters increased and bare up the ark. And it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail. And the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth both of fowl and of cattle and of beast, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man. It's a lot of people, isn't it? Don't know what the world's population was back then, but uh, every man, everyone, apart from the eight in the ark. All in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Okay, I'm running out of breath there. In chapter 6 and verse 6, and in verse 7, both of those verses, verse 6 and verse 7, it is written that 
it repented the Lord that he made man. What does that sound like to you? It repented the Lord, it repented Jehovah that he made man. It sounds as if the Lord God was filled with regrets, filled with remorse about making man, and that he rued the day that he ever said, let us make man in our image. However, you have to appreciate that the Lord God is all-knowing. Therefore, apart from anything else, that means that even before God said, let there be light on the first day of creation, he knew very well that sin would enter the world and that sin would thoroughly corrupt the world. And he decreed that in the fullness of time, this is before God even said, let there be light, God decreed that in the fullness of time his son would come into the world as a sacrificial lamb to redeem sinners with his own precious blood. That comes across very clearly in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 where the Lord Jesus Christ is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So already can you see It's not as if God was taken by surprise and it's not as if God got things wrong. He'd already decreed that Jesus, or that his son, his eternal son, would come into the world, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Also, when you consider all those Old Testament prophecies and predictions about the cross, for example, before Adam sinned, before he sinned by eating the from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord did not warn him about the consequences if he ate from that tree. There were no ifs. What God said was, on the day that thou sin, thou shalt surely die. I'll say that again. On the day that thou sin, thou shalt surely die. God gave notice to Adam that on the day that he ate of that tree, he would surely die. Just after Adam sinned, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is what Spurgeon said about that gospel promise, because that what we have there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, is a gospel promise. Spurgeon said, The seed of the woman, even our Lord Jesus, was bruised in in his heel, and a terrible bruising it was. How terrible will be the final bruising for the serpent's head? This was virtually done when Jesus took away sin, vanquished death, and broke the power of Satan but it awaits a still fuller accomplishment at our Lord's second advent and in the day of judgment. Again, this gospel promise was given just after Adam sinned, long before uh, people began to multiply, long before the whole earth was filled with violence, long before it repented God that he'd made man, that gospel promise was given of the Lord Jesus Christ bruising the serpent's head. It kind of makes you think God had thought things through and he knew what was going on or what would happen. 
And then there's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where the prophet Isaiah said, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, with his stripes we are healed. You you look at these um, prophecies, you ever think, where do they come from, these prophecies? Obviously, they come from the mouth of the prophets, who spoke as they were led by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, absolutely. But beyond that, where do those prophecies come from? When? When? They come from before the foundation of the world. God's eternal decree. God makes these eternal decrees, or has these eternal decrees, then they're enshrined in prophecy. And we see the prophecies that are uh, recorded for us in the Bible. But the point is, all those prophecies and promises in the Old Testament, if you want to trace them back, they go all the way back to eternity itself and God's eternal de- de- decree that he would st- send a saviour, a redeemer into the world to redeem people like you and me. The Lord Jesus Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world for all whom God hath chosen before the foundation of the world for salvation through faith in his blood. Quoting um, Ephesians chapter 1 there, if you're a Christian, you were chosen by God for salvation before the foundation of the world. Again, long before it repented the Lord before the Lord saw that the whole world was filled with violence and that every imagination of the thoughts of men's heart was towards evil continually, long before that, God chose you for salvation if you're a Christian. Long before sin ever entered the world by that first man, Adam, God chose you. So, when we read that it repented the Lord that he made man, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 and verse 7, rather than imagine that God had no idea that sin would enter the world and thoroughly corrupt it, it ought to be viewed as an expression of just how much God hates sin. How he abhors sin so much so that he brought a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh. All except eight people, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. Do you think those eight who were in the ark, including Noah, were any better than everyone else? Certainly we read that Noah walked with, what did we read there in chapter 6? Noah Yeah, in verse 9, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. It sounds like Noah was a real top man. He was better than the rest, by far. And of course his family. We can't leave out his family there. His wife, his three sons, and their wives. They were so much better than everyone else. And that's why they were shut into the ark by God and no one else. Not at all. If you think that, you'd be wrong. Not at all. Just look at chapter 6 and verse 8 again. 
Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace, let's remember what grace is. Grace is undeserved favour, unmerited favour. Noah was a recipient of unmerited favour from God. In a world in which the wickedness of man is great and filled with violence, in a world in which all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, emphasis on all, and no one righteous, no, not one, it is only by the grace of God, God's unmerited unmerited favour, that anyone is saved having found unmerited favour in the eyes of the Lord, and that included Noah and his family. Noah had a very real saving faith in the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. According to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7 in the New Testament, Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith, by faith, that is faith in Jesus. In other words, Noah became heir of the righteousness which is by faith, not of the law, but of the righteousness of Christ and of eternal life through that faith. His faith was in the Christ who would come into the world many years later. Noah's confidence was in the Redeemer who would one day bear away his sins at Calvary's cross. No difference. Don't think because it was such a long time ago that it was a different kind of faith. Not at all. His faith was in Christ. Also, Noah is described in chapter 6 and verse 9 as being perfect or upright in his generations and he walked with God. That uprightness and that walking with God was evident. It has to be. If you're upright, if you're walking with God, it should be evident. It was audible. It was a visible testimony. People could hear it, that they could hear it and they could see it that he walked with God. In other words, Noah had an active faith. For one thing, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness. As such, many years before the lamb slain from the foundation of the world laid down his life at the cross as an atonement for sin, Noah called on people to repent and he preached Christ. He did that over a period of many years to a wicked and rebellious generation. Not only was Noah a preacher of righteousness, he also built the ark and he did so in accordance with instructions given to him by God. So he preached the gospel and as we've seen, he built the ark, he was obedient to God. Not only was Noah a preacher of righteousness, his obedience showed him to be someone who had a genuine saving faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7 gives an interesting insight into what motivated Noah to build the ark In that verse it is written, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Noah, who, who was a man of faith, his obedience towards God in building the ark was motivated by a fear of God. 
And that in no way detracts from him being someone who had a genuine faith in God. Whilst just about everyone else in the world at that time defied God and they rebelled against God, Noah's faith was seen in his proclamation of the gospel, in his godly fear and in his obedience. Spurgeon said, Faith and fear can live in the same heart and they can work together to build the same ark. Faith and fear are very sweet companions when the fear is filial fear, a holy dread of disobeying God. When we are moved with that fear, our faith becomes practical and if I may add, it becomes visible. When you think about it, now the rest of the world in that time They wouldn't have had any fear of God. They were busy being violent. They were busy doing what they wanted. They were in rebellion against God. So who would you expect in such a wicked, evil, violent world to actually fear God, if not the Christian? Surely people who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, they ought to be the ones who have a fear of God. But as Spurgeon said, a filial fear a holy dread of disobeying God. We of all people, if we're Christians, we ought to be people who have that reverence and godly fear, people who want to do what is right by God. And of course, in everything we do, we look to God the Holy Spirit to work in us, to will and to do of God's good pleasure. No one else is going to do that. The person in the street who... who, who has no interest at all in the Saviour, he's not going to have a fear of God. But we who believe in Jesus, are trusting in him, should be different, I would have thought. I now want to spend the the remainder of our time considering the ark, the flood and its relevance to us all these years later. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, look at that, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. That doesn't mean to say that man will suddenly um, live to a hundred and twenty years. That's not what it's talking about. God was giving notice a hundred and thirty years. And this speaks of the long-suffering of God here. That 120 years of long-suffering ended with the completion of the ark and with the flood. What happened next was that all of the world's human population perished, apart from those eight people, including Noah, who took refuge in the ark. And that points to the Day of Judgment. As the Apostle Peter said, I'm going to quote a, a chunk from the New Testament from 2 Peter Chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. You can listen carefully, read along if you wish. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. The Apostle Peter said, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Saviour. Knowing this first, 
that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That doesn't mean that God doesn't know a day from a thousand years. It's speaking of his long suffering. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us ward not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Can you see the similarities here? The flood came after much long suffering by God and that corresponds with the day of judgment that will also take place after much long suffering by God. The Lord Jesus Christ will come again and he will judge everyone who has ever lived. In Noah's time, the world overflowed with water and now the heavens and the earth, according to Peter, are being reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and everlasting punishment of ungodly men. When the flood came, only those who entered an ark made with gopher wood did not perish. And on the day of judgment, only those who have shown repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will not go away into everlasting punishment, but will instead inherit the kingdom prepared from them from the foundation of the world, and they will go away into life eternal. So we can see a lot by looking at that historical event, the flood, the leading up to it, the long-suffering of God before the flood, that judgment, a big arrow pointing to the day of judgment when it comes. For now God is long-suffering, not willing that anyone should perish. But the day will come when Jesus will come and he will judge everybody who has ever lived. Last of all, it can be seen that entering the ark and being saved by water in Noah's day corresponds with baptism. That is water baptism. I want to, uh, if you will, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. And no doubt you're going to be looking at this for yourselves after um, probably looking at it until you wear the words out on the page of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. The Apostle Peter said, When once... The long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight, souls were saved by water. 
the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Astonishingly, this is something that is missed or is disregarded by many in Baptist circles, that the flood in Noah's time not only points to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also it corresponds with baptism, which according to Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21, doth also now save us. That certainly was not something that was missed in the early church. With repentance and faith came water baptism. People didn't show repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then perhaps get themselves baptised weeks or months or even years later like we tend to do nowadays. It just didn't happen in the early church. It's it's crept in and uh, this is how we'd have it now. And we'll even have people who don't see the need to be baptised at all. But in the early church, repentance, faith, baptism came together. We see that to be the case on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with the Jews who were pricked in their heart when they were told by the apostle Peter that they had crucified the promised Christ. They said, what shall we do? Peter's answer was, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then they that gladly received his word were baptised. They repented, they were baptised, they received the promise of the Holy, the gift of they received the Holy Ghost and likewise in Acts chapter 8 verse 37 and 38 an Ethiopian eunuch had a prophecy about the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ who was led as a sheep to the slaughter he had that prophecy explained to him by Philip the Evangelist He was then baptised upon his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, there was no delay. And he didn't really do it as a witness to others either. I don't know, maybe he had a few servants there to watch. Apart from that, there wasn't an audience that gathered to watch him. It was in the middle of nowhere. But he's having professed Christ presumably repented as well, having just heard a prophecy about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. He confessed Jesus to be the Son of God and he said, what does hinder me to be baptised? And he was baptised. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter says that baptism is the answer of a good conscience towards God. That is, a conscience that has been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. A clean conscience. Therefore, forgiveness of sins and salvation are received 
in in baptism by all who truly repent, all who truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, like the Jews on the day of Pentecost and like the Ethiopian eunuch. It must be emphasised that baptism is only efficacious to those who are trusting in the crucified and risen Saviour for the forgiveness of their sins and for everlasting life. As it is written in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. Therefore, as we come to a close, having considered the flood in Noah's time, the application for us all these years later is, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen.